core business principles transition across all lines here. So you can learn how to communicate, learn how to be motivated, learn determination. And all of those things are really important for success in any field. I'm a big believer in servant leadership. Leaders should be servants. And when you're a servant leader, people notice that and they know that you care about them and care about the role that they play within your organization. You start having an understanding of different perspectives, different motivations. It's a bunch of different people with different motivations, different values, and you have to learn how to put the pieces of the team together to drive the success and to meet the goals you're setting for yourself. Being a business owner is the quintessential definition of delayed gratification. Warren Herring is the founder, president, and CEO at Trust Care Health, a group of primary and urgent care clinics in Mississippi and Alabama. He was first exposed to the core business principles that he speaks about when he was a Cutco sales rep and eventually district manager with Vector Marketing. After finishing his master's at Tulane University, Warren got into the healthcare industry by opening his first clinic in the Jackson, Mississippi area. Warren's career has been defined by having long-term vision, establishing quality care and customer service, and leveraging servant leadership. He has grown his organization to 15 current locations, and his team is at the forefront of innovation in how healthcare services will be delivered in the future. What follows is an extremely genuine conversation with a leader whose path in business can be emulated by anyone. I'm happy to introduce him to you today. This is Warren Herring. Welcome to Changing Lives, Selling Knives. I'm your host, Dan Cassetta. There's a generation of entrepreneurs and business leaders out there right now who are positively impacting the world using lessons and skills that they first learned from selling Cutco knives with Vector Marketing Corporation. This podcast was created to share inspiring stories from Cutco's most prominent alumni and current leaders. On this show, you'll meet successful entrepreneurs, best-selling authors, superstar business executives, and transformational leaders from many walks of life. All our guests will have two things in common. One, they're all changing lives today through their work and their influence. And two, they all started out selling Cutco knives when they were younger. The lessons of the Cutco Vector experience are numerous, are compelling, and are real-world concepts for business and life. Through hearing real-life stories and hands-on experiences, you'll gain insights that can help you in whatever it is that you do in life. Thanks for pressing play. Let's get on with today's episode. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. My guest today is Warren Herring. He is the president and CEO of Trust Care Health, which is a string of primary and urgent care clinics throughout Mississippi and Alabama. Warren's time with Cutco dates back to 2004, where he started as a sales rep with Mark Bullard. He advanced to the position of district manager. He worked very closely with legendary division manager, Dustin Marks, and also has spent some time working with Brian Stevenson. Ultimately, Warren left Cutco to get into the healthcare industry. He started his first clinic in the Jackson, Mississippi area and has grown his organization to 15 locations today. He's running a successful business, has many great 
principles to share with you. I'm looking forward to this conversation, and I know you'll get a lot of value. Warren Herring, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. All right. Well, uh, let's have the audience get to know you a little bit. Warren, why don't you start by sharing a little bit about your personal background? Oh, I, I grew up in uh, Jackson, Mississippi area, and uh, started actually in Jackson uh, with the district office here with Mark Bullard. Uh, he and I still stay in touch this day, as well as Brian Stevenson. And then went to college at uh, Sanford University in Birmingham, where I, where I majored in, uh, in accounting. And uh, then a couple years after graduating, I uh, ended up going to business school at Tulane down in, down in New Orleans. Um, got a wife of almost 14 years and, and four kids. All right. Very cool. Started with Mark Bullard there in Jackson. That, uh, that is cool. Mark and Brian, of course, are Hall of Fame division managers with the company to this day. And so it's, uh, your, your Cutco roots are pretty solid right there. Uh, take us back to 2004 and tell us how you got started with the company. So I just gotten finished with my, uh, with my freshman year at, uh, at Sanford. And uh, for some reason, I decided to take 50, 52 hours in my first year, 39 hours during the actual year. And then I decided to take 13 hours of summer school, which when you're taking that much summer school, you don't have a lot of time to, to take a job or make any money during the summer. And I got a, I got a letter in the mail. And I'd already had some familiarity with with the with the product and vector because my brother had had sold it years earlier, and so I I came in and uh, interviewed with with Mark, and uh, and and thought I could do a good job, but it also had the flexibility to allow me to 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 do my studies while still trying to make some money during that during that summer. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. So. Tell us about that first summer and what were some of the experiences that stand out and what were some things you learned? Well, I mean, uh, right out of the gate, being able to have that flexibility was really important to me. But then I, I started succeeding at it and started being, you know, making a lot more money than any of my other friends did. And I was probably working a, a, a tenth as much as my friends were that had other summer jobs. Uh, it was just a good foray into learning core business principles. And core business principles transition across all all lines here. So you can learn how to communicate, learn how to be you know motivated, learn determination, and all of those things are are really important for success in any field, whether it be sales, medical field, being an attorney, whatever those items may be. Having those principles and being able to be successful, those, those things are important for that. Yeah, indeed. Like uh, there's no doubt that the skill set that one gains from selling Cutco can be transferred to almost anything else. And uh, it's great that you recognize that. Uh, Every job is a sales job, whether you want it to be or not. You're either selling sure. a product, selling a service, or selling yourself. Every single job is a sales job. Yeah, exactly. Thank you for sharing that. I love being able to have that perspective offered from someone who has become successful, you know, leading an organization and really understands the the role that sales plays in that process. So you uh, fairly quickly became a district manager. Uh, you went to Birmingham for that. I guess you were going to college in Birmingham at that time still. Right. And uh, at some point along this line, Brian Stevenson comes into the picture and you, you kind of were a, a teammate of his there in Birmingham during the latter part of your district manager days. 
Tell us about what you learned from being a district manager with Vector that you feel directly applies to running your business today. Well, it's your first foray foray into it. And when you're really, really good on the sales side and as an assistant manager, sometimes you might come into that role a little overconfident. So I'd I'd say the first thing that I learned was running a business uh, is is not easy and neither, neither is being a leader of a business. And you work with so many different people from so many different walks of life. I found that the experience that I gained in leading so many different people and a lot of them, you know, some, some of them long-term, some of them short-term. But when you, when you work with so many different people from so many different walks of life, you start having an understanding of uh, different perspectives, different motivations. And it's a microcosm of what the real workplace is. It's a bunch of different people with different motivations, different values. And you have to learn how to put the pieces of the team together to drive the success and to meet the goals you're setting for yourself. Yeah, that's powerful. That uh, uh, it is a microcosm of what the real workplace is out there. And you know, for anybody that gets that experience, uh, it certainly can be super valuable. Do you feel that your two, two years or so as a district manager had a powerful impact on your ability to succeed in what you're doing now? Oh, no question about it. No question about it. You're learning core marketing principles. You have to learn a little bit on the accounting front. I majored in accounting. So, I mean, mine was was fine. That was one area that was pretty easy for me. You learn how to market, learn how to sell, you learn how to train. There's so many components that come into it that are so important to running a, any type of business. And it's it's just, a it was a perfect training ground. I've always told everybody that a lot of people ask what I felt about my experience going to Tulane and getting my my master's there. And I would actually say that I I value that initial vector experience from a training ground and an experiential uh, standpoint more so than I than I do a very expensive degree that I paid for. I value that, too. But I, I would say, like hindsight, looking back at it. Both had a lot of value, but from a running a business standpoint, I don't think you can learn any more than doing it yourself. Exactly. Uh, Warren, I, I, I feel exactly the same way, and this is not in any way to belittle the very expensive educations that both you and I <laughs> have, uh, have experienced. It's the, the education side is there's a lot of theoretical stuff that happens there. That's good to hear and it's good to know. And I, like you, valued it and I appreciated it. And I'm glad that I you know, went through the education that I went through. Um, but the real life experience is just irreplaceable. And for someone oh, no. you know, at a young age to have that type of an opportunity, uh, it's, uh, it's just super powerful. Great. Yeah. How did you get into the healthcare industry? Well, so I, after I got done, I got done with my, my MBA in 2010, the world was on fire still after the 2008-2009 crash. And I decided to come back to Jackson, Mississippi with my wife, uh, Dana, and start working with the family real estate development firm that was not in a very good spot. Commercial real estate, which is a business that my family is in, uh, is is a lagging economic indicator. So on the front end, it hit housing. On the back end, it hit uh, it hit commercial properties, and so honestly, we were we were kind of in a tough spot 
And uh, I was determined that as a as a family business that we would never be in that spot again. Uh, and so started going back and forth basically with my dad on looking at other businesses that we could explore that we thought, you know, needed some innovation. And we, we arrived at that healthcare. We thought healthcare was an area that we could, you know, lend some expertise in from a standpoint of, you know, location is important with clinics in particular. And so most people don't associate real estate with healthcare, but being able to pick the right location, develop it the right way is an important part, especially when you're trying to grow, grow a business. And so that was really helpful having that expertise, but also having my dad's years of leadership, coaching through that process. And we, we arrived at wanting to get into the primary care and urgent care business more so than anything else, because it's, it's the tip of the spear in healthcare. And what I mean by that is most people's first experience with healthcare, if they have something going on with them, they usually start with primary care or urgent care. And we thought that that was an important spot for us to start with as well. Okay. And so this began with one clinic in the Jackson Metro? One clinic in the Jackson Metro. My office was uh, was an exam room in our first clinic for, for the first two and a half years of the of the company did not have a window at a $59 office max desk sitting up against the wall. When we started doing uh, drug testing, I was, I was the first PP collector. So uh, I did the, uh, <laughs> I did the, uh, I ran the front desk. Uh, I ran our drug testing program it, uh, stuff that I could, the stuff that I could do with the adequate, with the right training, uh, but did not require a medical uh, certification or degree. But uh, I was right across from our nurses' station, and I just thought it was really important because we were trying to change the way healthcare is delivered and the overall experience that people have in healthcare. I thought it was really important for me to be on the ground, consistently engaged, and see what problems come out of it that that we could formulate solutions and better experiences for for patients coming through the door. Wow! So you're you're truly leading from the front in this way. Uh, it, it's almost like a restaurant owner that keeps their desk out in a corner of the restaurant and sees everything happening the entire time. I'm a big believer in servant leadership, big believer. I mean, if you know you have a, a staff member that's having a, having a tough time or is overloaded, if you're one of the first ones coming to them and saying, what can I take off your plate to make it easier for you? People appreciate that. There were many times when we when we started finally getting busy, which took a while. But when we first started getting busy, where um, you know front desk was just getting overloaded, and we didn't have a, a second front desk person yet. And I would I would run up there and start answering the phone, registering patients, and and trying to give uh, trying to give her a break so that she could eat lunch or do whatever else she needed to do. That very cool. So tell us about the growth of the organization, how it progressed from one to 15. We opened the, the first one a little over 10 years ago now. And then that one started having a, a pretty positive trajectory. So we felt comfortable that we had our core, our core business operations functioning the way that, that they needed to. So we opened our second location in uh, a little over two years later. And then we maintained two facilities because obviously having an additional one takes a little bit of figuring out as well. 
And then in uh, 2016, we moved a clinic that w- that we had outgrown and opened four. Wow. What does opening a clinic entail? A lot. Like you, you have to find a location, you have to rent the space, you have to set up the space. And then there's a whole series of things after that that help get actual clients coming in, right? There's a ton of pieces to it. I'll, I'll be honest with you, though, opening a new clinic is easier than running an established busy clinic. Mm. Because leading up to the opening, there's not other people involved. Right. <laughs> you don't have anybody working there yet. Right. And so granted, the first couple of times you do it, it's a little challenging. But once you get the, the process set up and you've got it in place and you've got the checklist that you need and the other things. And, and I'd mentioned earlier, my family's in real estate. So from a real estate standpoint, that process being able to be put on, on them is actually a, a huge advantage for us organizationally because my family knows what we're doing on, on real estate stuff. And so it was really, really helpful having that expertise come to bear when we were, when we were in growth mode. 2016 was, was a difficult year, very difficult year. That year, my wife and I had our third child in 18 months. Oh. On top of all the other stuff. <laughs> Is there a set of twins in there, Warren? <laughs> yes. Yes. We have <laughs> we have boy-girl twins that are now seven. Uh, we've got a little girl that's that's five. And then my youngest son just turned two. But 2016 was about as, as chaotic of a year as I I actually it it was almost as chaotic as COVID for me was 2016. Because we basically grew rapidly in that time frame by adding that many clinics. And when you add that many at once, there's just, there's a whole heck of a lot to figure out. Yeah. Was 2016 the year you added the four? So you went from two to six? Yes. You know, what's funny is moving a clinic was harder than opening a new one. Hmm. And we didn't close one day. So, I mean, we literally turned off the lights and had everything structured and scheduled for everything else to be moved out. And we opened up the next morning, wow. <laughs> yeah. which I've also resulted in a hernia, by the way. <laughs> I've, I've pulled that off with a couple of vector offices, but uh, yeah. here it's a yeah. little bit harder. Yeah, it was a lot. The med- medical clinic. Nice. So you got you built up to six clinics in 2016, and then it's just yeah. continued to grow from there to reach yes. the 15 you have today. Correct. Correct. Nice. Yeah. So what what were some of the challenges you faced along the way that you had to figure out how to get past? What I tell everybody who's, who's in a leadership position, uh, manages people or, or owns their own company, first and foremost, you got to have risk tolerance and feel comfortable with that. But anything that you're doing that includes other, other human beings is, is going to be challenging because no one's values or opinions are always perfectly aligned. And that's why I was you know, mentioning earlier how important it is to have a good understanding and a good read on people in general so that you can not necessarily ignore the differences, but you can be more accepting of those differences and try to pull the best out of people so you can create a, a team environment that, that functions at a high level. My team is unbelievable. I mean, I'm, I'm unbelievably blessed with the team that I've been able to surround myself with. And I honestly couldn't do it without that team being in place with what we're doing right now. Yeah. So tell us about 
navigating COVID as the CEO of a business that requires people to be coming in on a daily basis? So the week New York shut down is the exact same week that we brought my fourth son home from the hospital. And I remembered vividly the exact stoplight I was at to turn on the main road to get back to our house, taking our son home. And we were listening to the radio when they were just the first that we had heard that New York was getting shut down. And uh, she looked at me and she said, this is probably going to make the clinics busy, even though this is really bad. And I looked at her and I said, sweetheart, this is going to be the worst thing that's ever happened to us. She said, why? I said, nobody is going to want to come into a clinic when they're worried about a virus that no one's ever heard of that's killing people. (laughs) Two weeks later, our volume dropped by 80%. And how many clinics are you operating at this point? Eight. You had eight at this point. Okay. At eight clinics at that point. There were no modalities to test people at that time. So there's really nothing of value we could offer a patient that was fearful about an unknown virus that was spreading and killing people. And so it was really, really tough to navigate for about four or five months. I mean, the first two months of the pandemic, we lost $2 million in two months. I didn't have my house permanently financed. We had just finished it and I didn't have it permanently financed and I couldn't get financing after the pandemic hit because I had to take a reduction in compensation to try to maintain more employees on our team, even though we didn't have really that many patients. And so it was, it was difficult to say the least. It was, it was not a fun four, you know, four or five month period of time. How did you come out of that? Man, I, we got lucky and I'd say a blessed as well. So I was able to facilitate a direct contract with one of the large testing supply companies that ended up from a supply logistics standpoint doing a lot better job than almost any of the other ones. And we basically were able to, to have a discussion with, me and a partner that I had on this, have a discussion with, he had the discussion with their CEO that he had a relationship with, and basically convinced him that college sports would not exist if we didn't get testing back into the school environment. And we agreed that we would not only put the tests on college campuses, but we would teach the colleges how to do it appropriately and how to do it in large volumes. So as part of that, uh, us organizationally, we basically had unlimited access to rapid testing four to six months before anybody else did. And we had people driving 10, 12, 15 hours to Jackson, Mississippi from other states, and we didn't even market it. People needed to get back to work. They couldn't wait 14 days. And at that point in time, the lab-based uh, tests were taking 10, 14, sometimes even 20 days to get the result back. And, uh, and you had people that were suffering because they couldn't go to work. And so it went from how are we ever going to dig out of this hole to how do you handle this many people? And so we had to completely rework from the bottom up our entire operational process clinically through use of technology. Obviously, we had to get bring more people on board to assist with it, and we had to do it really, really quickly. Wow. So it was a quick pivot to get into this space of testing. 
yeah. that helped you to pull out of the the doldrums pretty fast. Well, it, it, it was four or five months later, but relatively fast, I would say. Um, yeah. I mean, even after we started having a lot of success as it relates to being able to provide something of value to the community, because now you don't have to wait five, 10, 15 days to get a test result. You can get it same day. It was chaotic to say the least. Chaotic. Wow. And then after this episode sort of began to fade into the background, uh, has it been more like business as usual and growth from eight to 15 locations since then? Not uh, So we, we moved into the Birmingham market, which is our first out-of-state market, and trying to transfer your vision and values and your culture during a pandemic from one city to another that's three and a half hours away has certainly not been, not been the easiest. And it, it's getting a lot better. The pandemic is definitely getting a lot better. But now we're still in the, the COVID cycle scenario. So we go from a time frame of where we're seeing too many patients and it's hard to even you know maintain the volume and take care of people and then right after the surge goes down everybody wants to avoid your clinics <laughs> i've started calling it clinic fatigue they get so sick of getting tested that after the surge is over they're like i'm not going i'm not going to hell i'm not touching a healthcare facility until i'm deathly ill and so it's just it's just swings peaks and valleys. And our business has historically been very cyclical. So we, we're, we're very, very busy in cold and flu season leading up to that. So kids go back to school and volumes start increasing. And then in March, after March and April, after allergy season, your volume starts uh, dropping down and then kids are out for the summer. And those were historically your, our slower months where you could kind of take a deep breath and you get a little bit of a break from the daily grind. And then kids would go back to school and the, and the whole cycle would start over again. So August was historically always the worst month financially in our business. Last August was the busiest month we've ever had in the history of the company. So now the, the normal cycles just changed because of COVID. Yeah. And it's just straight up, straight down. And it, it's just up and downs pretty consistently, which is tough to manage to from a staffing standpoint. Because it, it always feels like you either have too many or too little people. As you're growing a business and growing a company, you don't have redundancy. And redundancy is extremely important in business. You never want to be reliant just one person to do a role. So you either have to create a process or create that someone else can easily pick back up, regardless of who it is, or you have to have more than one person who can do that role. For instance, if you took me out of, out of trust care tomorrow, the company would continue to run without a hitch. And it's because we've created redundancy within our, within our organization. Any business that is, has a lot of people involved is always going to have issues because people are, are imperfect. Right. You and I included. We're all, in, we're all imperfect. Exactly. And so um, business just has, has peaks and valleys sometimes. And you just have to put your head down and fight through it and learn how to cope with the adversity and really do a good job in thriving when, when things are going in the right direction. That was a great insight about redundancy. And for anybody who's running a business to think about, right, how can they apply that 
in their business, whether it's being able to have somebody who could fill your shoes or also obviously being able to have different people who can play different roles in the organization so that if anyone were to leave, somebody else can step in and handle the job. Well, and it's, it's not even just the people. It's creating processes that assist for you having redundancy mm-hmm. and having it really well organized and really well documented so that if, if someone that is important to the organization ends up leaving, the learning curve for putting someone else in that role doesn't take very long. And then as a group effort, you can maybe have two or three people that know something about the other person's role because that process has been so well established and has been well thought out and functions correctly. Got it. Great insight. Have you had any locations that have sort of outright failed? Uh, had one location that, that failed. So in that, that same year that we were opening the clinics in 2016, it didn't fail until COVID. Well, I'd take it back. It was failing before COVID. And we did an outpatient heart clinic. And when COVID hit, talk about a clinic that really dropped off. Uh, that one dropped off substantially. And so we ended up deciding just to, to get out of that business and focus on our core, our core being primary care and urgent care. And so, yeah, we have that location did not do well. It's interesting, though. It was outside of your core focus. Agreed. And then that might be a big reason, right? We Perhaps you were biting off more than you could chew with a different type of clinic. Yes. How have you successfully spread your vision and your values and your culture over 15 different locations and 15 different places? You have to be really systematic about it. And what I, what I always tell everybody is that as your organization gets bigger, you don't have to try less. You have to try harder. Because vision and values, not just to me, but to my family, are really, really important. And so on, on the front end, in the early days when our, when our company was obviously a lot smaller, I had two pretty simple principles that were pretty broad purposefully because they were simple to communicate. And I would always just state with everybody we talked to, our organization is all about quality care and customer service. And I'd have honest conversations, whether when I was talking to people that were working in clinics because I'm not medical, and I tell them, obviously, I, I, I can't have a ton of input on quality care because I'm not the one rendering the actual care. And so we're going to focus on the, on the customer experience on our end and let the medical professionals focus on the quality. And so uh, everybody knew that customer service is important to me. And I, we've done a good job on maintaining that component. And as you go along, you put more and more measurement tools in place to make sure that there's a layer of accountability to that, in particular on the ones that are core to your organization's success. And again, it gets more challenging as you as you go along. But I mean, we've made a bunch of adjustments even just recently, because internally I felt like we were starting to have a hard time getting people that had a shared passion for not just the patient care, but also the patient experience. And so we brought in a basically someone who is her entire role is training. And as part of that, we did the Ritz-Carlton training program on customer service. We implemented a, a lot of that mindset within our, within our training program. And now the customer service component of our, of our training process 
is 50% of our entire training process. We focus more on that one topic than we do anything else. And in my opinion, you have to, because the healthcare environment, in my opinion, it struggles because it has, it has the mindset that people need you when every other business has to function as uh, we need you. Right. So in other words, people in medicine sometimes treat patients like they need the healthcare professionals when it should be the exact opposite. If we don't have patients, we can't pay our bills and we can't keep our lights up. Right. And so uh, we've just always stressed that. And, and, and I took a really big role when we brought her on, making sure that as we were updating all of that, uh, all of our training and our, and our process, that, that the vision and values and the, and the cultural things that were important to me were being implemented as part of that training process. Yeah. I love that you've made that mindset shift from, you know, people need us to the idea that, you know, we need to be serving the customer because it, it would be easy in a business like yours to have that opposite mindset that you described. I think about, right, the times I've needed to go to urgent care. I don't have a lot of choices of where to go. I mean, I, I think I kind of have like two or three yeah. choices in my general proximity of where to go, but you're sort of stuck with what you get and you need something urgently, obviously. it's You'll wait however long you have to wait and you'll deal with whatever person you have to deal with and you're sort of stuck with it. And, and so for you to be able to, to, to flip that around and say, hey, we're not gonna fall trapped to that mindset. We are gonna provide a customer experience that is amazing. It's a refreshing thing, I suppose, from, for someone like me, from my perspective, to be able to hear. Well, it also differentiates you in a in a business model that's not that differentiated. Mm -hmm. So, if people who who don't go to the doctor very often, they're they're going to go to Google and they're going to type it in. And and if all your clinics have four point seven, four point eight, and four point nine stars, and the next guy down has uh, three point nine, their decisions made pretty quickly, and it's not based off of clinical quality or or anything other than the fact that other people that went to this clinic liked yours better than they liked the other person's. Yeah. Indeed. And so, and it's a long-term mindset because doing really running an efficient clinic, providing really good care and doing it timely is not something that earns you market share overnight. Anybody who, uh, who wants to start their own business or, or, or lead a business, if you have a short-term mindset and you're not willing to, to work hard, probably should do something else <laughs> because it being a business owner is the quintessential definition of delayed gratification. One way to equate it back to Cutco is, is that getting good referrals and getting into the right doors does not happen overnight. You have sometimes a lot of failures on the front end and, and then you start finding ways to better communicate the value of the product. And then you, you find the people that believe in it and you do a good job of getting referrals from those individuals. And those individuals are most likely going to have a higher pr uh, proclivity to buy. And then you start expanding your network and expanding your growth of, your, of building your business. And over time, after a lot of hard work, you start really putting yourself in a spot to succeed. Yeah. I just love that you, you referenced that it's a long-term mindset and that for anybody who's in anything 
for the long haul, whether it's, uh, you know, working in Cutco for a long time or, or building a business such as you have, there's a lot of times where we're confronted with short-term versus long-term choices. And the short-term choice might seem like it's expedient now and helpful now, but it, it is never the right choice over the long haul and always veering towards what is going to be the decision that's going to benefit our organization as a whole and the, and the customer and, and have the greatest overall benefit in the long run, that those decisions accumulate into something great. Agreed. Warren, are there any other leadership philosophies that you would say are important to you? Leaders should be servants. And when you're a servant leader, people notice that and they know that you care about them and care about the role that they play within your organization. And I think trying to put yourself in a spot in which you have people around you that you trust, but they also know that you trust them and allow allow them to make mistakes. Don't allow them to make any big ones, but give them the opportunity and feel like their opinion matters and that they do not feel stifled to communicate their thoughts or, or their opinions. I've got a core team of about four or five people. And if they disagree with me, they're going to tell me they disagree with me. And if you're always in a, if you're a yes man or a yes woman all the time, and you surround yourself by those individuals and your thoughts or, or your strategies are not being challenged, then you're not going to have the best thoughts or strategies coming out of those meetings. So a little bit of respectful conflict, and in my opinion, is where you produce the best ideas. And I think the best ideas come from a, a group of people that are looking at the problem through a different lens. And the more lenses that you can have that people are looking through that are competent, that are part of that team, the better product, service, whatever you're doing is going to be. Five people thinking about something is going to be better than one person that's the smartest person in the world thinking about it. So yeah. the more smart minds you've got in the room helping out with, with building the company, the better. Really brilliant uh, insights, Warren. A buzz phrase in leadership today is the idea of psychological safety. And it seems like you've created an environment where people feel comfortable making mistakes. They know that they can make decisions. They're empowered. They feel comfortable coming to you with suggestions or input, even if it's in disagreement with something that you've put forth and that it leads you to be able to find the best avenues for success and to have powerful relationships with people and to have people who feel a sense of ownership over their part in your company. All great principles for building an amazing organization. I always think that your idea is the best one. I I would argue you're not going to succeed. Yep. Great stuff. Great stuff, Warren. Well, listen, you know, the podcast theme here is changing lives. You're clearly in an industry that has the potential to do that in many, many ways. What are some of your aspirations for the future in terms of being able to change people's lives through what you do? You know, I was mentioning earlier how important customer service is, is to me. And I'm of the opinion that healthcare is, is not just disconnected, it's ineffective and outdated. And when, when I say that, I sometimes get, you know, people are like, what? And, and what I mean by that is not healthcare technology itself, but the process in which it goes through operation. And so 
how can something that enables and has some of the most amazing breakthroughs in technology than any other sector be so miserable to do? Right. I mean, it blows my mind that it's that way. So we have been investing over the past year in, into our own communication tool in a form of a, in a form of an app. And this app allows members, because we do charge a, a small premium for it, but it allows members to be able to text our care teams through a HIPAA certified uh, platform for just simple stuff. Instead of playing phone tag with the clinic when you need a medication refill, imagine being able to open an app and, and press the button that says, I need a refill, and someone responds to you in five minutes with feedback. And that feedback might be, hey, the, the doctor wants to see you before they do this refill. Or the, the comment back might be, I see this pharmacy on Main Street is your, is your main pharmacy. Is that the one you want us to send it to? Yes. And you get text communication back. Done. And uh, it's just streamlining the communication and, and making healthcare more accessible and making the healthcare experience more relational is really, really important to me. And we're starting to onboard employer groups in particular that want better healthcare for their employees. And so we're, we're moving in that direction very, very quickly. And I can honestly, it's probably the most exciting I've been about anything I've done in my career is being able to provide that level of access to patients. Text your doctor, say, hey, my back's not getting any better. What are the next steps? Get a text back. Hey, we're going to take the step to physical therapy. And then five minutes later, your referral is set. You get a, a Google map link in your text telling you where to go, what time, and process is done. All done in a few minutes as opposed to getting in your car, driving down, waiting to see. First of all, having to make an appointment, then getting in your car, driving down, having to see somebody all for a quick little bit of feedback that you could get much more easily. Yeah. And, and sometimes the answer back to the patient is going to be, we need to see you in clinic for that. Of course. Yeah. Just increasing the communication uh, and really building better relationships between our healthcare providers and the patients we're trying to take care of. Because there's so many breakdowns on that front. And I think that's a large reason why, you know, we have some of the best healthcare tech in the entire world, but we're, we're the mo- one of the most unhealthy countries in the entire world. And it's because that those barriers have to be broken down to facilitate better care being rendered. And, and relationship is important to that. Yeah. Love what you're sharing, Warren. I mean, the healthcare industry is so innovative as a whole in terms of what are the treatments uh, that are provided. But this idea of how to deliver healthcare in a way that's convenient and streamlined and high on the customer service and just innovating in that space just seems like a great mindset, just a great uh, space that you're in. And it's cool to hear you thinking about those things. And it's great to see the success that you're achieving along the way. Very much appreciate it. And very excited about what the future holds. Yeah. Well, hey, this has been awesome. I appreciate all your insights and you know hearing your experiences. Thanks so much, Warren, for being a part of the uh, podcast. Thank you. Really good talk to you. All right. All right. That was Warren Herring, everyone. Uh, you just get a sense that that's just a real great guy that has some strong values, is building 
a great organization and just has a lot of value to add to the world. Love how he shared that the district manager experience is a microcosm of the larger workplace and that there were so many skills and experiences he had during those days that have helped him with his organization today. He is ingrained in himself the concept of servant leadership. Love that he was sharing about how could he take things off someone else's plate, his organization that he was leading from the front right from the early days as he built that first clinic and the importance of training in his organization for customer service and for ingraining his values and philosophies into everyone else on the team. He talked about how people challenges exist everywhere. They're typically the greatest challenges because people are all different and are all imperfect. And we all have to learn how to navigate conflict. We all have to learn how to work with different types of people. We all have to learn how to communicate well and create a situation where people are inspired and motivated and recognized and valued. And these are all things people learn during their vector days that Warren is applying in his business today. The concept of redundancy for both people and processes in an organization and the importance of that, that was insightful. And of course, I think it's great that Warren is is working hard to innovate in how healthcare is delivered in the world and doing some cool stuff along those lines. I hope you got some great value out of this episode with some important principles for business success. And I appreciate your support of the podcast, everyone. Thanks. Thanks for listening. If you got value from today's episode, please share it with others and consider rating or reviewing us on your podcast player. Subscribing to the podcast is free and ensures that future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. For access to guest bios, show notes, and other resources, visit changinglivespodcast.com. You can sign up there to receive valuable resources for free from people featured on the podcast. And to support our podcast sponsors, visit changinglivespodcast.com slash deals. This is Dan Cassetta signing off. We'll be back in a few days for our next story about changing lives. 